Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. When you think about the week's news, a theme emerges. Today, we're examining the increasing prevalence of an empathy deficit in American culture. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today we're covering the Trump budget and the pearls and then talking about empathy in relation to the budget, immigration, religion, and the suit. And as always, in the heels, we'll talk about what's on our mind beyond politics. Well, President Trump has given us an initial budget. And just so we're clear on the process before we move on, you know, the budget is the province of Congress. So this is the administration's opening volley. It is not set in stone. It is likely... It is unlikely to go very far, I think, in either chamber of Congress, and Congress does have the final say. So, you know, it's important to discuss because I think it gives us a window into the administration's thinking, but it is not law. And thank God for that. (laughs) So an overview of what this budget proposes is basically a giant increase in spending on defense, homeland security, and veterans affairs. And then reductions in spending for pretty much every other function of the federal government. The Environmental Protection Agency takes the biggest hit. 
There's a recommendation to eliminate 19 agencies, a reduction in foreign aid. Even the State Department's budget goes down 30 percent. So it's uh, it's a very clear articulation of what America First means to the administration. I think it is so short-sighted to think that protecting um, the security of our nation is just about beefing up the military and not about how we live in relationship to other countries, either through our environmental situations, through the increasing difficulty with which we will have to face resource allotment, water pollution, rising tides, all those things, and with regards to decreasing the budget with foreign aid and the State Department. Like, so the only, we don't ever have to be in a relationship with anyone else in the rest of the world. We're not sharing a planet with other countries. We're not having conversations about building relationships with each other and aiding each other. It's just all about bigger ships to defend our borders. It's, I mean, what year is it? I like the way that you articulate that about America's relationship to the world. And I think that's a good framework through which to examine the Trump administration, because I don't see an interest in an ongoing relationship. It's more uh, constant adversarial positioning. If you look at the conversation that he had I, conversation is kind of a generous word. The the press conference that he and Angela Merkel conducted during her visit, you know, that should have been a moment that was about relationship development. And instead, it, it felt very awkward at best and strangely adversarial afterward, especially when he treat, tweeted about Germany needing to contribute more to NATO. I mean, that's just not kind of how you get started on the right foot. And it's back to that same thing he always does, which is the sort of zero-sum positioning of everything. I mean, we are not in a colonial era. We're not competing for real estate with other countries. This is not a zero-sum game. We are in a complicated relationship with the rest of the planet with regards to the environment, with regards to when a country like Yemen or um, a country like Syria has conflict, or whether the conflict is driven by... um hunger and, re, uh, you know, a lack of resources. And what, what does that mean for us? And how can we prevent sort of an escalation into a crisis that does begin to affect in a more direct way the rest of the world, including us? Like, I, that really bothers me. I'm frustrated about this budget for a lot of reasons. There are parts of it that I just don't understand. For example, the Trump administration is budgeting a dramatic increase in fees to be collected for drug makers and medical device makers to pay to have medical products reviewed for approval by the FDA. And I don't understand how that fits in with the AHCA or anything Trump has said about healthcare. Perhaps it does, and I just don't get it, but I don't get it. I'm confused about I'm confused about the coherence of all of the reductions on the small side of things. Mm -hmm. So when you say you're going to recommend eliminating 19 agencies, that sounds like a big deal. And it is to people impacted by those agencies. And it's also not at all a big deal to solving the big picture problems with our federal budget. Mm -hmm. So Trump is just like taking all these swipes at... Programs and, you know, what's getting a lot of press are the most sympathetic things like Meals on Wheels and drug addiction programs. 
And those dollars are huge dollars to the programs involved, and they are nothing if you're trying to actually reduce the federal deficit or actually get to a balanced budget. And so I I really wish that Republicans would have taken the opportunity to say, we're going to hit pause for a moment, we're going to really spend some time on this budget, and we're going to look at the budget in connection with everything else to try to figure out what are we going to do here? Because we we clearly have an issue balancing revenue and expense. Let's work both sides of that equation. They're talking about tax reforms and let's take a look at all of it together. This just felt like another kind of lazy move, right? Mm-hmm. We're just going to take our red pen out and go to it. Well, it's not just lazy. It's uninformed. It shows It shows a sort of surface understanding of the budget and the PR battles surrounding the budget. And it feels like it feels like a public relations move. It feels like a, you know, sort of a marketing ploy, like, well, we're going to show you we really care about how big the federal government is by really going after all these things, even though it doesn't actually impact the deficit. But it, like you said, I mean, there's already two things that would really affect my community. He is proposing eliminating the Delta Regional Authority which our mayor went through training with, and it was really um, a positive experience. And they just gave us a huge grant to help upgrade our flood wall pumps. Not to mention the he's eliminating funding for smaller airports. It would basically close our regional airport, which would have a huge impact on my community. And to do that in, you know, what, if you really, if you would really, really like to see me lose my sh- Let's talk about the impact of my commu- on my community of that small amount of funding and how he's blowing through that amount of funding every time he goes to Mar-a-Lago for the weekend. Well, I agree with you about Mar-a-Lago. And I tweeted over the weekend, I saw on uh, Chris Hayes' report that President Obama averaged a cost of about $12 million a year to taxpayers for travel. In his first two months, President Trump is at $18 million. And that's just travel. I bet that doesn't include the cost of keeping Melania and Barron in New York and maybe even what the security with, with regards to his adult children and all their travel. So it is really tone deaf in relation to the budget that has just been proposed. And I think you're right about the PR nature. And I'm just frustrated about that all around. This was ridiculous by the administration and Republicans. Like if if you're a Republican and you're out there trying to defend this budget, which P.S. a lot of them are not, right? I mean, there are Hal Rogers from Kentucky. There are lots of Republicans saying this thing is dead on arrival. I think Lindsey Graham has said that a few times now. But if you're a Republican out there trying to defend this, what a miserable place to be. And then on the other side, I really cannot with the idea that anyone who would dare to cut a dollar anywhere must hate that program and hate the people who benefit from it. You know, the Meals on Wheels example is probably the roughest one. But listen, thinking that the federal government is not the best problem solver for hunger does not make you a bad person or make you a person that doesn't care about hunger. There are questions to be asked here, and there are long-term questions to be asked. I don't think that we should go through and slash funding for almost any program in a single year. I think if you want to actually start reducing the size of the federal government, which I believe would be a good thing, you do that over a five, 10-year process so that there is an opportunity for programs to stabilize as that happens. And that doesn't mean that I don't care about all of the various programs that are supported by the federal government. It just means I'm not sure that that's the right way to support them. I just wish that we could kind of all get out of like, we're just stuck, right? It feels like 
Trump did exactly what we've talked about before. I love it when Brooke Castillo says that money just makes you more of who you are. And I think that we're right, that Trump just makes you more of who you are, because we're not having a new conversation about the federal budget. We're just having an even angrier conversation, an angrier version of the conversation we've been having for decades. Are we ready to compliment the other side speaking? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, let's do that. Well, a lot of people on Twitter shared this with us. Um, There was this adorable bipartisan um, road trip that two Texas representatives, Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat, and Will Hurd, a Republican, when a snowstorm canceled their flight. So they rode together to D.C. and they did all these Facebook lives video. And it just... Warms my heart, warms my heart. And they, you know, were very wonderful and open about what they learned about each other and that they can work together and they just barely made the vote. And everybody was, I thought it was just a, br- a bright, bright, bright spot among the usual partisan rancor. Well, my compliment for the other side goes to a group of state legislators in North Carolina. I was excited to have something positive to say about North Carolina politics. There is a group of legislators, all Democrats, who are talking about education and about how important it is to both support traditional public schools and examine other options. The quote that I loved from Senator Erica Smith Ingram was that the challenge is for us to get away from the either or and set our hands and tasks to both and. And I loved that and thought, gosh, if we could do that in a hundred contexts, we would benefit greatly. So I thought there was a lot of nuance in the position that they, these legislatures are taking, legislators are taking, and just kind of a lot to be learned from the conversation that they're trying to have. I'll link that article in the show notes so you can get more details on it. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pansy. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I was in a local church recently and I saw this photo on a bulletin board as you entered and I snapped a picture and I shared it on our photo on our um, social media accounts. It is of, is it Omran or Omarn? Omran? Dagnish. He's the five-year-old that was shown sort of dazed, covered with dust in the Syrian civil war several months ago. And underneath the photo... A very, you know, it was a very viral photo. Someone had written, uh, typed, if someone doesn't tell him about Jesus, then he may become a part of the ideology that caused the situation he is in and end up in eternity separated from God, far more devastating. My fervent prayer is that God will send someone to tell him. So we got a lot of comments about <laughs> so that. Just, and I it's said, just, it's I breathtaking. Talk, yeah, I said, I want to talk about that. And all I did was put the screaming emoji face a couple times. That was my only contribution. <laughs> I did feel, and hearing you read it again, just like a jaw-dropping amount of despair that, one, someone felt that, like that was the thought they had upon seeing that photograph, and two, that they would go to the trouble to like print that, like make it a PR piece. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with that. And I think what it made me think about is like in all of our conversations right now, I think we have just an incredible lack of empathy for each other and, and an incredible willingness to prioritize our own worldviews over trying at all to understand where other people are. Well, absolutely. It's so hard to even know where to be with this. So I think the first thing is when a photo like that becomes viral and, and it becomes a sort of symbol on which to act out our politics or religion or whatever, the first thing that I think is lost, and especially when we're talking about in the presence of an empathy deficit, is the realization this is hard. This is a little boy. This is a real little boy. And the reason that that photo was so upsetting to me is I have a five-year-old little boy just like that. And to think, you know, this little boy's brother was killed. His 10-year-old brother was killed. I have a eight-year-old son older than my five-year-old to think of a situation in which 
my oldest son died and I couldn't protect my five-year-old or my two-year-old. And I was stuck in this situation in which um, my country could not advocate on my behalf. I had no, I had no citizenship on which to stand on. You know, I think we take for granted as American what it's like to, you know, you you have this sense. I always had this sense when I travel that nothing's going to happen to me. I'm an American. You know, like, even if it did, my country will, you know, burn it all to the ground to help me or keep me safe or just to feel that sort of protection surrounding me because of nothing else but where I was born, the luck of birth. And to think about not having that and not having anyone but like, you know, Angelina Jolie out there advocating for me is so intense and so foreign to anything that I've ever really experienced and would be hard enough on my own. But to think about a situation in which I could not protect my children or if I had lost a child is just, you know, it's really difficult for me. It's sort of a meta empathy wall because there's a there's an empathy wall for me to understand the absence of empathy here. I just can't fathom it. I can't fathom look, as the mother of a five-year-old boy looking at this photo and feeling anything but just earth-shattering heartbreak. So it's really difficult for me to put myself in a place where someone could write that caption. Well, I agree with all of that. We had a number of commenters to the photo when you posted it, talk about how basically this is what's wrong with religion in our country today. And I think there's something for us to kind of tease out of that because I think it is representative of why religion is struggling in the United States, you know, why our churches as institutions are not attracting as many people as they used to, while why there's maybe a diminished uh, cultural influence from religion, because what we're getting um, when you're not in church every week is this sense that this is what religion means. And then I think for a lot of us who are in church every week, we don't even recognize this as a part of our church experience. Um, you know, the church that I started attending after the election is very much about, let's just meet the needs of the community. I don't hear much about kind of evangelizing at all. It's just you know, there was a need in our community for affordable housing about 15 years ago, and this church built an apartment complex for senior citizens that's still thriving today to provide affordable housing to those folks. So there, there is, um, I think, I think the problem is that there's this projection that all people of faith come at it from this angle that your faith is prioritized over any sort of grace for other humans. And I don't think that's what's happening in every church or even the majority of churches, but it's kind of um, indicative of our our left-right sensibility. Everything seems to be just pushing to extremes. And I, I don't know what to do about that. Well, I've been listening to Krista Tibbetts' um, Becoming Wise. It's like the expanded Kindle audio edition with lots of excerpts from her fabulous podcast, On Being. And I was listening to... um a section of the book today. And the, what she talks a lot about is that the 20th century's answer to sort of the, the multiculturalism that um, was becoming more of a reality in the United States, but really sort of as 
globalism became more a part of all of our lives and, you know, opposing viewpoints and different cultures and all these things that are so um, increasingly fundamental to being American and being a global citizen was tolerance and that tolerance was not up to the challenge. Tolerance mm-hmm. says, you know, don't don't fundamentally shift the way you understand things. Don't accept the other, but just tolerate it, right? Just just um don't seek to understand it, don't love it, don't embrace it, but just tolerate it. And she really pushes and asks a lot of questions about how that fell short and what should our answer be. And, you know, On Being is a very spiritual podcast, and this book is very spiritual and is asking very spiritual questions. And in my own religious and spiritual journey over the past, I would say, five years, I've had to undo and, you know, sort of brick by brick, take down the wall that a lot of religion taught me in my youth and religion as it is seen by many, many people that commented on that photo and represented by that caption, which is oppositional is about the other and sort of a boxing of the other and and putting it in a box and making it fit your worldview and your understanding. And over the last five years, I think through a lot of things, my own church community, through the treatment and sort of exploring how other religions think about that. And we've talked about Richard Rohr on this podcast before. I'm a huge fan of his. And, you know, on being in all these broadcasts, all these great podcasts I listen to, and the philosopher today that I was listening to said, you know, Jesus's understanding and his teaching was not to box in the other. It was to understand that there is no other. We are all connected. Communion is about believing that we are one body and we are all, you know, that this sort of deep understanding of our connectedness as human beings. And I think a lot, I've been thinking a lot about as I've been listening to this podcast or this audiobook about James Baldwin and the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, and his really understanding that the civil rights era, Jim Crow, and, you know, the sort of racism of that age and our racism today is not just damaging to black people, but is damaging to white people too. And I think that this lack of empathy and this, um, th- this boxing in of the other, because there is no other, because we are connected, how we treat other people, be it economically, globally, with regards to foreign policy, it affects us. You don't write a caption like that and you don't think about a five year old child in Syria without just it's not just damaging to him it's not just damaging to the the quote-unquote others that we want to leave behind or neglect it is toxic to yourself it is toxic to the life you live and the way you you know the choices you make and i think that religion at its best offers a space to get past that and to embrace the other and to find those those deep wells of empathy and to expand, not to close off. And it's so sad to me, but I totally understand the anger um, with which so many commenters reacted. I mean, I grew up in a space that left me very angry at religion. 
And it's easy to re- to read that caption on that photo and get very at the, angry at the person that wrote it. And listen, I make lots of space in my life for righteous anger, but it's just, it makes me so sad more than anything. I think it's sad because you recognize when you really start to think about it, and I guess this is my version of empathy too, people who react that way, if your default is that little boy needs Jesus, and that's the first thing that little boy needs, right? I think that it speaks to your desire and thirst for connectedness to something. Mm-hmm. Like we're all searching for to be connected to something beyond ourselves, right? And so religion at a shallow level can become basically a drug for that. And I think religion at a deep level is sort of the casting away of that sense of let me find a shallow sense of connection to a to an openness to like much broader connection. But at a shallow level, I think religion is a lot like politics is for a lot of people or um, any number of other groups that you join where you're just looking for something beyond yourself. I mean, it's not all that different from joining a gang or um, a movement like ISIS, right? Where you're just, you just want to be part of something bigger than you. You know, we've got this little group of people who are um, having fun kind of trolling us on Twitter right now. And I find it just fascinating to watch what happens around those tweets because I look at it and think, you know, I think that this is just a group of people who like are really looking for something beyond themselves. And they're finding it in a place that I don't get, that I think is unhealthy, that I think is not great for themselves or our broader society. But I do want to keep coming back to understanding like, what are you looking for? Yeah. Because I think what we're all looking for is pretty much the same. We're just going to different places to get it. Well, and I also liked what one commenter said, which is, you don't even know this little boy isn't Christian. There are Christians in Syria. And, you know, with love, I doubt this person is a foreign policy expert. And the reason that Syria is you know, increasingly turning into a humanitarian or already is a humanitarian crisis is not as simple as a religion. It just is so reductive on its face. And, but again, it's, I also see deep within this caption, the sort of deep story she talks about in Strangers in Their Own Land, which is, you are asking me to feel sorry for this little boy so that he can cut me in line. And what I'm saying to you is, you know, putting him in line is not the real problem. The real problem is that he's not a Christian. And, you know, they sort of need to fix their own line, not trying to try to come jump ours. You can sort of, you know, hear that. Don't tell me why I should feel sorry for him. Don't tell me I should feel sorry for him deep within that. And, you know, it, 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 this where I saw this caption is a very low income neighborhood with a lot of problem on its own. And so, you know. It's like the hierarchy of needs. It's difficult to reach out in empathy when you feel you're in pain and neglected yourself. Now, I know we're going to get emails. I'm not going to feel sorry for these people. <laughs> but you can't ask somebody to feel empathy without feeling empathy for that person as well. I mean, I'll never forget Richard Rohr has a uh, email where he says like, you really know you've moved past sort of this black and white way of thinking when you can have sympathy for people who feel that way. 
And that is a big ask a lot of days. <laughs> and this caption proves it. I remember my first experience of empathy pretty vividly. I I don't know how old I was, but I was young. I mean, I was probably maybe 10. And I was in a Walmart. And all of a sudden, like, I just stopped. And it I almost felt frozen. And it hit me all at one time that everybody around me had something they were thinking about and parents and a story and like all the things that were important to me. It just all of a sudden I could feel in my body that like everybody around me had all those things too. And I remember being completely overwhelmed by that. And I think, I don't know what created that experience for me. I don't think it's something that I could like replicate for my own children if I tried. And I I hope and expect that they'll have their own experiences like that. But I think it kind of matches what you're saying about this tolerance as a substitute for real empathy. And the Washington Post has a good read about that, talking about these neighbors in Texas who rarely talk to one another. And there is a woman who is 60 who drives a bus. She grew up in a very middle class family, and her economic circumstances have just declined over the course of her life. And her neighbors are uh, children born to undocumented workers who are doing well in school and are working hard, and the parents are trying to become legalized citizens of the United States. And how both of these families have very similar days in terms of like when they get up and leave their house, how hard they're working when they get home, but they're just in totally different mindsets. And a number of things jumped out at me as I read it. But a big one was that the family of immigrants viewed everything in front of them as a challenge, but also an opportunity. And the woman from Texas is angry that she feels like all of her mm-hmm. opportunity has been taken from her. And I just thought it was very compelling. I'll never forget when Oprah set up her school in Africa and people were so angry because she'd done it overseas. And she said, I've given lots to children in America and it is not received in the same way, because there is this sense of entitlement. But nobody wants to hear that. And right. nobody is going to go, oh, you're right. You know, you're. I'm right. I'm being entitled. But, and I think it is, it is a sense of, I was born here and that I am entitled. I am an American. And through the luck of birth, although I don't know if people really think about it in that terms, you know, sort of the, the lottery I won is I'm supposed to receive certain things because I was born here. As opposed to, you know, it's an opportunity, not a gift. It's a, and, you know, I don't, everybody is that's born in this country, everybody who immigrates to this country is not given the same opportunity. I don't believe that. But the complexity with which we, we see why we were born here and to what circumstances we were born, I think, affects your capacity for empathy, that's for sure. And I think people have different levels of capacity for empathy. Um, I was having a conversation with Bryn, our listener who we refer to all the time, and he was aggravated by a quote from a New York Times piece on the budget. And the the person talking about the budget said, look, a lot of us are very conservative in our community. We don't like the federal deficit. 
Um, we are big on personal responsibility, but we have friends and family members who are struggling and probably need Medicaid. And so we don't know how to react to these things. And Bren was really frustrated by it because he read it as, and, and not unfairly, read it as like people who I don't know and maybe people of color or people otherwise not like me can just go ahead and suffer. But if people like me are impacted, then I'm worried about that. And I think that's a fair reading. I also think it maybe speaks to like, like we're not even, this woman in Texas isn't even able to connect on a level of empathy with the people who live next door to her. And we do have to get there first, I think, before we can expect people to empathize with that Syrian child. Maybe not, but either way, it's all kind of the same problem, right? It's that inability to, as Brene Brown would say, like crawl down in the hole where someone is and think about how both of you get out of it instead of looking down at the top of the hole saying like, woo, that sucks. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's very difficult to ask someone to feel empathy or love or kindness when they do not feel safe. And whether or not and it's also not very empathetic to sort of look down the hall and feel like, oh, I'm sorry you feel unsafe down there. But I think that just there are a huge proportions of Americans who do not feel safe. And I mean safe in that secure, in a security sort of way. They feel that the world is a scary place. They feel that that world is intruded into their backyards. They feel um, rightly so that the economy is uh, becoming a more difficult landscape for certain socioeconomic um, groups, and they feel threatened. And it is very difficult to um, reach out and be sympathetic or empathetic or loving or kind when you feel threatened. And when, you know, it's your kids whose, as far as you're concerned, future is being threatened. And I, and I, that's hard. It's hard and it's so chicken and egg because without empathy for others in the world, I don't know how you have a perspective on that feeling of threat in the United States. As I expand what I read, right, try to get out of just the constant churn of like, what did Donald Trump tweet today? And read more about other countries in the world. I continue to just marvel at like how safe we are in the United States. So even as we feel that the world is dangerous or even as we feel and 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 this is not to discount anyone's experience in the United States, but it is to say on the whole, we are such a prosperous and safe and peaceful country mm-hmm. on the whole. So I don't know. I guess I'm saying, how do you create a a deeper sense of empathy. Um, it just seems circular to me. I'm struggling to put it into words, but I get that we need to understand that our friends and neighbors feel threatened. And then I think also we need some more empathy to help people not feel as threatened, right? At least relative to the rest of the world. Well, I think that there are two sort of areas to address people feel threatened when they're um like i said when they're 
I think the biggest thing for many Americans is a feeling of the the back to that deep story that eco- the economy no longer um, works for them and they are being left behind. But I think historically, there's sort of if you look back, there's two ways that people sort of get out of that mindset. One, something really, really, truly terrible happens. Like, I don't think you had that after September 11th. I don't think I was listening to that same pod, uh, audiobook and they were talking about how they felt like there was a, that a, a certain sense um, after Hurricane Katrina. And for this like small moment, there was polling that said like 70% of Americans would have their taxes raised to to address the the devastation in New Orleans, which is sort of amazing when you think about it. And so I think that there are external circumstances in which we feel that um, sort of the needs of the the group, the nation as a whole are more important than our own personal lack of security. So I think that's one way. And then I think you see it when we when we come together for an overarching cause. But again, I, I still think that that cause is usually begun or I don't know the word I want, sort of sparked by an outside threat. I mean, I think that that's where you see the group sort of bound together, not advocating war, just saying. (laughs) Well, right. That's where I was going to go. I mean, can we learn from those horrible experiences and try to avoid the need for something like that as an instructor, right? And I think that one way to do that is to ask a lot of questions about where people are coming from. We we got an email from our listener, Max, about uh, single-payer health coverage, and he had a lot of data for me about how effective single-payer coverage is in other countries. And it was very interesting and compelling, and I don't have any fight with any of it. And I still think that in the United States, a federal single-payer single program is concerning. And at, at one point, he said, what would it take for you to change your mind about this? And I said, well, here's the thing. We're asking different questions. My question is not, is single payer the most cost effective health system available? My question is, in the United States, should our federal government be the single payer? (laughs) And And then I started thinking even more about that conversation and about all of the assumptions built into my position on healthcare. And it is like, one, I start with America is unique from other countries. Two, I think America, even as a federal system, is unique as to other countries. Three, I have a certain sensibility about power. And, and you know, and I just kind of started working backward from there. And it made me both understand why I was detecting some frustration from his comments to me, because maybe he was starting with some different things in his bundle of assumptions underlying his position, right? So I wonder if we can just kind of keep working to ask all of those questions and at deeper and deeper levels, put ourselves in the seats of the people we're talking with so that we don't need like war and famine to help us work through this problem. Well, and I, again, not to keep going to this audiobook, but y'all, it's so good. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, she was talking to this really great nun I really like nuns just as a general rule. I mean, not like the like <laughs> Catholic school slapping people's knuckles nuns, but like I just feel like progressive nuns are the coolest. So this was a progressive nun. And she was saying, you know, we don't have to fix everything. Particularly progressives have this attitude of like, because 
Krista Tibbett was talking about the sort of current state of the world and how so many of us feel anguished. And I thought that was such a great word. I do. I look at the picture of this little boy and I feel anguish. And you feel powerless and you don't know what to do. And she said, you know, we don't. Why do we think we have to fix it and do everything? And I find myself getting in that headspace, even with pansu politics and polarization, like I have to solve it and I have to fix it. And she said, you know, if you believe, as I do, that we are all connected and we are all part of the whole then that's that should be freeing because it's not all up to you and you don't have to fix it. And your job is only to do exactly what you just said, which is listen, connect, find your place inside this, find the space that of which you can do and what you can make a difference and, you know, the small acts that you can work towards in your everyday life. Um, you know, Pansu Politics is a huge blessing because it gives us this platform to feel like listening and connecting um, sort of multiplies in this really incredible way. And, you know, we're all, our entire community is a part of that. And that is something and it is very powerful and it is very important. And it is very needed in the face of this empathy, you know, deficit represented by that photo. But um, I don't think that we, you know, while the anguish is hard and it's not that I think we should turn it off, I do think that we should recognize that as a part of a whole, as a part of, you know, connected to every other human being on the planet, which I believe we are, then um, we don't really, not only can we fix it, but we don't even really understand the impact of everything we do and every conversation we have and every um, um, space of connection that we find in our own lives. And that's great. And that's um, powerful. And a beautiful thing all on its own, even if we don't completely understand it. That makes me think of two things. So one, my favorite poem of ever is called The Invitation. And there's this part in it where it says, I want to know if you can be with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. And mm. I love that so much and think about it all the time. The other thing it reminds me of, and I thought maybe a nice way to wrap up this segment. Um, do you follow Anne Lamont on all the things, Sarah? I do. I love Anne Lamont. Sometimes I find her to be in a different place than I am, but I always okay, learn something. I'm glad something. you said that because sometimes she gets on my nerves. I'll just be really honest. I'm either like <laughs> swimming in it with her and we are just, you know, we are perfectly aligned or I'm like, oh, you're getting on my nerves today. And then I just have to walk away and come back later. I feel exactly that way. But that's part of what draws me to her because I feel like she's interesting, right? It's not just this kind of um, radio that I can sing along with. I have to really think about it. So anyway, I thought her update today was great, and I'm going to try to not read the whole thing because it's long, but I thought so much of it was really applicable. We can embed it on our show notes. Yes, we're getting fancy like that. So she's talking about how people are very um, miserable in the current state of things. One of the things that she said that I um, really liked was that people are afraid to turn on their phones. What bizarre thoughts and threats have has Trump tweeted at dawn? Friends started smoking, not to mention that everyone has gained the Trump 12, which I thought was amazing. Oh, the Trump 12. <laughs> so why in this fever dream, she writes, do I still believe that we will be okay, that grace bats last, that mercy from within us and around us will be more than enough to help us come through? Partly, as usual, it is because of the profound and passionate humanitarian response of people, churches, mosques, and temples. Partly, it is the stunning generosity of people giving to great societal 
causes. And then she goes on to talk about how in African Christian liturgy, it says that God created us because he or she thought we would like it. And then she wrote, this stops me in my tracks. We would like it? Yes, of course, we would like the friendly, warm, or breathtaking parts of life, but it's so hard for almost everyone here, the whole world over, let alone my own beloved. You cannot believe what the people I love most have lost this year. God thought we would like waddles, divorce, warfare, snakes, and acne. I could go on and on. Senescence, global warming, urinary tract infections. (laughs) Yes, because in the words of Candy Staten's great gospel song, Hallelujah Anyway. Hallelujah, that in spite of it all, there is love, there is singing nature, silliness, chocolate, and mercy. And then she ends with kindness toward others and radical kindness to ourselves buys us a shot at serenity, at a warm and generous heart, which is the greatest prize of all. Do you want this or do you want to be right? Amen. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind besides politics? <laughs> oh, man, I'm thinking all the deep thoughts with this audiobook, but also in pure and total contrast to my deep spiritual thoughts. I desperately want to buy this house across the corner from me, and I am using every bit of intention I can to bring this house into my life. And I've enlisted Beth's intention. As so well. is this the same house that has some same roofing house. issues? We're, You're still manifesting yes, this there's, house? There's some man- yes, we're manifesting this house. We're going to manifest some maintenance first. Um, this is a house I've known since childhood. One of my friends from church grew up in this house. Um, they, this, her family lived in it for 20 years. I like remember being in it in high school only a few times. And I just love it. it I, mean, I really feel strongly we belong together. So we are, we're still, we're still intending. We're working it. We're, we're visualizing. <laughs> we're dream boarding. We're chanting. We're do, we're burying things in the yard. All the things. We're doing all the things. Okay. Well, good to know because I had been kind of reciting your price point to myself over and over. Maybe I should drop that a little bit give, yeah, as you've it. learned drop some it, of these issues. Mm-hmm. We've, dropped, we've dropped the price. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I'll keep thinking about it. Well, since we had kind of a d- deeper spiritual kind of suit today, I will similarly go a little lighter. (laughs) I have been fighting a cold. And so last night, instead of doing anything productive that I was supposed to do, I binge watched Designated Survivor. (gasps) It's gotten so good. Is it good? Have you watched any of this? Is it good? It's gotten so good. I mean, it's good, like, action movie good, okay? It's not good, like... I like it, a good action movie. There's nothing wrong with a good action movie. I mean, listen, it's... You can sit on the couch and just watch it. It's not, like... The other day, I was so stressed, I watched three superhero movies in a row when my kids had the flu. Okay, see? That's perfect. That's where we are. That's the Mm -hmm. level. Okay, good. But it's so interesting, especially right now, because it is a poignant sometimes overstated reminder of how (laughs) (laughs) of how fragile our whole system is and as you watch things like gosh what happens when there are only a handful of people in our congress then you start to really understand what our congress's role is and what happens when certain departments don't exist and the power of state governors really clashes with the president's power. And it's just, it's fun. And there are a bunch of different storylines at work in it that for at first annoyed me, but in my binge watching started coming together in like a, I can't wait to see what happens to that next kind of way. So I just highly, I I would like some of y'all to watch it just so you can talk to me about it. Because <laughs> Chad fell asleep during it last night, and then he woke up this morning, and I was like, let me tell you what happened with the McLeishes. And he was like, oh, my God, Beth, I could just watch it. And I said, no, 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 I need to talk about it. So if anyone wants to just watch <laughs> and talk about it with me, that would be super. I like it. I like it. Well, thank you for joining us for a very sort of um, emotional episode 
of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back on Friday with, I'm sure, lots more news with the briefcase. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our Chief Creative Officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsuit Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics, or Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and Pantsuit Primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at or beth at